Hey everybody, this is Senior Pastor Joshua B. Carson saying thank you for tuning into the CT Podcast. We hope that your time here, whether you're driving down the road or whether you're sitting at home with a journal and listening in, we hope that it's effective. Maybe it'll be inspirational, encouraging, maybe it'll be thought-provoking. Regardless of what session you're listening to, we truly pray that this is a benefit to you and to your family. God bless and enjoy the podcast. Tonight we get to take a look at Jonah chapter 4. It is the last chapter in our study for the book of Jonah. It's been a great time as we've dove into the chapters and we've looked at what the text represents for that day and for that age, but it's also been just as exciting to pull from the text the practical applications that can impact us in this day in which we live. And so as we start looking at Jonah chapter 4, it'll be no different. But if you would join me before we dig in, and let's just ask God to help us. Lord, we thank you for what we have felt here tonight. Thank you for this team that has led us into worship, for your presence that we feel. We're asking God that you would help us as we close out this series to understand what we can take away from the fourth chapter. God, minister to us. Help us, Lord, to learn from your word and to grow from your word and to be able to apply it to our lives. Allow it to guide us in this day. In Jesus' name, amen. In order to move forward in chapter four, we're going to have to do a little bit of a recap of what's taken place so far. In Jonah chapter 3, we find out that Jonah has made his way to Nineveh. God spoke to the fish and the fish spewed him out onto dry land. And Jonah makes his way into Nineveh and he declares the message that God asked him to do from the beginning in chapter 1. And he tells them that in 40 days this city will be overthrown. Verse 10 says of chapter three, and God saw their works. He saw that the Ninevites response to Jonah's message was one of repentance. They called a fast and, and they declared that perhaps this God of grace, this God of mercy would Withhold this judgment from us if we should repent and turn from our evil ways. And so God saw their works that they turned from their evil. And God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them. And he did it not. So now moving into chapter four, we start off right away with Jonah's response to Nineveh being spared. For all of us that have been in church for any time, we go to a service, we go to a tent revival, and let one person walk into that place for their first time, a wretched sinner, and let them make their way to an altar. Let them lift their hands and repent of their sins. Let God forgive them of their sins. And we get so excited. 
How incredible it is to watch God transform somebody's life. And, and here we're seeing an entire city spared from the wrath of God. And Jonah says this in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore, I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore, now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. I can handle somebody being a smart aleck or a smart mouth to me. It's not really a big deal. Runs off my back. But it really, really gets under my skin and bothers me if somebody does that or speaks that way to my wife. That doesn't give me a right to respond with a jab or an uppercut. Take a kneecap out. Doesn't give me that right. But I feel that same way right now reading this text about how Jonah is treating my God. I'm like, you smart mouth little prophet. Have you so soon forgot the belly of the fish? It is clear here that Jonah made this argument back when God first called him. He explained all of this to God back then, and that's when he ran. That's when he got on the boat. That's when he said, listen, I don't want you sailors to punish, be punished for my mistakes. Throw me overboard into the sea. He gave up his life being thrown overboard. He had no idea what God was planning. And then God incubates him in his mercy and grace in the belly of this fish. And then Jonah cries out, prays unto God. And then God speaks to the fish and the fish lets him out. And, and Jonah goes and he does the work. And now he's right back in the same attitude when they repent for what they were doing. Jonah, was you thinking that when you came this time that God would change? Could it have been in Jonah's mind for even a moment that since he was obedient and since he prayed and since he walked into that city and delivered that message that maybe God would change and conform to Jonah's ways instead of Jonah being required to conform unto God's? I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me that he would bring this case up. And that's what really gets me burnt up thinking that Jonah would speak this way to God after everything that he had did. But what we see here, we see the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. 
From the very beginning, chapter one, when we first read it and God called Jonah to to do a work and Jonah decided, I'm not going to do that. He fled. We start to see here now in chapter four, all along that was a heart issue. Jonah wasn't in proper alignment with God. His heart was not surrendered to God, the prophet of God, the man of God. It's hard for me to fathom that he was walking faithfully with God, that he had the favor of God on his life. And then we come to this one moment where God asks him to go and to do something. And Jonah says no. And then his heart starts to shift from alignment with his Lord. Proverbs 4 and 23 says, keep thy heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. In other words, we need to guard our hearts above everything else for it determines the course of our life. We see it playing out for Jonah. His heart was out of whack and out of alignment with what God wanted to do. And now it was taking a faithful man of God down a path that he would have never imagined himself going. God is not satisfied with our obedience in action alone. It is our heart that he is after. Because if we give him our hearts, actions will follow. James chapter two helps us to understand this. In verse 17, he says, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yeah, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. We know We know that that's impossible. That's ridiculous to imagine. And James is saying that it's just as ridiculous to think that you can say that you have faith, but it doesn't produce the works. Verse 19, thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect. Jonah prayed in the belly of the well. God released him and he put into action obedience. He walked into the city, he delivered the message unto Nineveh. I hate to even consider the fact that from the outside it can appear like total obedience, but from the inside his heart is far from him. That's a lesson for us to get a hold of and not to miss. It is altogether possible for us to be going through the motions, for our actions to be pleasing unto God, but for our heart to be so far removed from him that we are disgusting in his sight. Jonah has a heart issue. But God tries to help him by asking a question. In Jonah chapter 4 and verse 4. Then said the Lord, dost thou well to be angry? 
Jonah, dost that well to be angry? Now, have you ever been in a place where somebody's trying to help you out? <clears throat> you're, you're talking to them and, and they start in a good attitude and in a good spirit. They start quoting scripture to kind of tell you where you're at. But you're not ready to receive that kind of counsel at that time. And it becomes more and more frustrating even to hear it from them than if they would just be silent. You know their heart was trying to guide us, trying to help us. I'm the only one that has friends like that. Or maybe I'm the only one that gets upset about that. Okay. But that's what God is trying to do for Jonah. He sees Jonah where he's at. And he's trying to help Jonah to see where he's at. Jonah, does it make sense for you to be angry with me? This is the kind of question we should ask ourselves if we ever reach a place where we are angry with God, a place where we are disappointed with God, a place where we are frustrated with God. Now, everyone lied earlier, so I'm going to tell one more poll. Has anyone ever been frustrated with God? We're getting closer. There are a few angels among us. The reality is we can end up in a place. I'm not saying it's a right place or a good place, but a place where we get frustrated or we get angry with God. And we got to ask ourselves this question. Is it okay that I'm feeling this way towards God? Is this right for me? The answer should be no. The answer should be that we acknowledge that God's ways are above our ways and everything that he does is right. But if we are in a place and we're honest with ourselves and we know that we're frustrated or we know that we're upset and, and we ask ourselves that question and we say, yeah, I deserve to be mad about this or I deserve to be frustrated with you about this then it makes sense that we bring that frustration before the Lord. But ask yourself, why am I mad about this? Why am I frustrated about this? The only time we get upset or disappointed is when our expectations are not met. Here's the thing. If my expectations do not align with God's plan, then it's my expectations that need to change. If we are angry with God, we should, we should take it before him with a pure heart. But we've got to filter it through what we know about him to be true. This is the only way. This is what God was trying to get Jonah to remember. Is it good that you're angry with me? I just took you out of the belly of the fish. Is it good that you're angry with me? I kept you in there three days because one day wasn't enough for you to repent and cry out. And God's trying to shift his thinking to recognize, man, I'm flawed in my point of view. You're right, God. I should not be angry with you. I should rejoice in the fact that you're not destroying this city. I should rejoice in the thought that they repented and you did as you always do. You forgave them 
I should rejoice in those things. But because Jonah is so frustrated, he's not allowing God's words and his guidance to even lead him in the right direction. And that's what we've got to be careful of. Sometimes we get so frustrated, we get so disappointed, and we think things should be totally different that when God starts speaking to us on our own account, remember Jonah's throwing a fit, a tantrum. I almost asked the creative team to grab me a video of like a two-year-old on their belly throwing a tantrum because that's what I feel like with this guy. God's done everything for him and he's still upset about it. But if he would respond the way God's trying to get him to respond, he would start filtering his attitude and if he should be mad through what he knows about God. What do we know about God? There's a lot we know about him. But let me share a few things with you that come to mind when I'm trying to deal with my own frustrations. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Every blessing that I receive in my life, every good thing that I have ever partaken of is a gift from above. Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, while we were broken, while we were lost, while we were liars, while we were cheaters, while we were not faithful to him, while we didn't obey him, while we were sinners, he died for me. He died for me. And when I'm mad at him, I need to filter everything right back through that. Hold on a minute. What kind of God do I serve? I serve a God that every good thing that ever happens to me in my life comes from him. I serve a God that while I was a sinner, he died on the cross for me. We know how powerful prayer is, right? We believe in the power of prayer. Here's one other thing we know about God. Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with the groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit. Because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for the good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. So we know about the power of prayer. When I'm filtering my bad attitude through what I know about God, I've got to acknowledge the fact that prayer is powerful. And when we pray for things according to his will, they are answered. But this verse the verses we just read tell us that we oftentimes don't even know what we should be praying. But if we will enter prayer and the spirit begins to pray through us, it knows what we need to be praying. It prays it on our behalf. God honors that in alignment with his will and it comes to pass. Like there's not a bigger red easy button for Christians or apostolics to smack and say, man, that's easy. God does that for us. He loves us so much that when we don't even know what to ask, he speaks it on our behalf. 
I asked them to put this up there. I want us to see it before we move on. This is one thing we can never forget. God is never wrong. He's never wrong. Never wrong. Yeah, but you don't understand about how my job went. He's never wrong. Well, you don't understand. I got lost kids. He's never wrong. Well, you don't understand. We're, we're sick right now and we're battling illness. He's never wrong. He's never wrong. He's never wrong. Never, never. And we've got to allow that to settle into our hearts because that will help us in times of despair to remember he's never wrong. Our next point I want to pull beginning in verse five is my response is my responsibility. Now, Brother Fridley, he quotes this statement often, so much so that people are starting to give him credit for it originating with him. <laughs> While I don't know where it originated, I do know he was sick yesterday. He pushed through and came to church today. So on behalf of Calvary, we will say it originates with you. <laughs> it is yours, my friend. But Jonah needed to understand that he could not control what was happening around him. Couldn't do it. But he does control how he responds to it. And Jonah just can't seem to get this part right. Verse five. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and there made him a booth. And sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. He doesn't even answer God. Is it good that you're angry? Is it well that you're angry? Jonah doesn't even respond. At least not verbally. We can't say with certainty why Jonah finds a place to watch the city, but here's what I believe. I believe that Jonah was so overcome by his bad attitude and how mad he was at God that what he was saying in this moment was, I'm done talking. I'm done. God, we've had this conversation before. You're not getting it. I'm done. I can picture Jonah as mad as he is with the things he's already said to God, doing this thing where he just pouts and he stomps off after God says what he says. And with his actions, he actually does respond to him in the question that he had in verse four. And he goes and he puts up a place, builds a little booth and he sits back and he watches the city as if to say to God, you wanna know why I'm mad? And if I feel like it's okay, I'm mad. I'm going to park right here and I'm going to get a clear view of that city and you're not going to do nothing. You're not going to destroy them like you said. They're going to be normal. It's just going to be okay. That's why I'm mad. That's why it's okay for me to be upset. And I see Jonah with this attitude towards God. And if we're not careful, we just gloss over Jonah and we paint him as this great prophet or a good prophet even. Dude's an idiot. <laughs> we have hope. Yes, we do. 
He is. I don't know what Jonah's thinking or why he's responding the way he's responding to God, but he is. Let's look at what God does to him next. He sends a lightning bolt from heaven, destroys Jonah, leaving just a pile of ash. Okay, no, that's what I would have done if I was God. Strike that from the notes. Here's what God did. Verse six, and the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. I don't understand you sometimes. And Jonah got a gourd. Quite miraculous that this plant would grow so quickly to where it could cover him and provide shade. But while Jonah's being who he is and God's responding once again with this great mercy, isn't it incredible that while God is sparing a city because they have repented of their sins, He's also moving through the heart of Jonah, a prophet who's fallen away and trying to hold him together. God is reaching for the lost and God is doing his best to keep us all together. He's aware that even though we live for him and we love him, that the enemy's taking shots at us all the time. God is well aware that if we're not careful, we'll get caught up in a snare. Something that we wasn't planning on would take us out. A seed of, of bitterness planted years ago will somehow grow because of a circumstance in our life today. And God's aware of those things. And I think it's important that we watch all throughout Jonah. God continues to provide the grace to him and the mercy to him to try to bring him back into alignment with his will, all while never stopping his plan to forgive Nineveh if they repented. He was taking care of everything all at the same time. But while he's preparing this gourd, I want to take a look at the language so we can see how he feels about Jonah's attitude. That word grief there in verse six, the root word appears 663 times in the Old Testament. 442 times it's evil. 59 times is wickedness and 25 times is wicked. The same word translated as wickedness, where it is describes the Ninevites evil in chapter one, verse two, and again in chapter three, verse eight, and displeased where it describes Jonah's displeasure over God's decision to spare the city in chapter four, verse one. Jonah's attitude was as evil in God's sight as the Ninevites' actions. Man, if I wasn't in church, this would bring me in church. To think about God looking at the Ninevites, this barbaric people, and willing to forgive them when they repent. And then for him to look at Jonah 
and for it to be clear in the word choice that he feels the same way about Jonah as he does the wickedness in Nineveh. And time and time again, he's doing everything he can to lead him back onto. I just imagine God at some point's got to get fed up. At some point, the hammer drops. But I don't see it at all. We're at the climax. We're at the end of this study, the last chapter of the book of Jonah. And not one time has God not tried, despite Jonah's attitude, despite his heart being far from him. God continues to try to reach him. The reach of God's mercy to the undeserving is the theme that continued to elude Jonah. Here's the thing, even as he experienced it. Man, that's the hard thing for me to swallow because that's the reality of it. Jonah is fed up that God is not going to destroy them. He doesn't like the fact that they're being given this mercy, this grace. And yet, while he's fed up with that, God is continuing to give him the same thing. We have to be careful. Men and women of God, we have to be careful. We cannot partake of this and then think that we can choose who gets it and who doesn't. Whosoever will. Whosoever will. Nineveh, mm, I don't like it, but God's okay with it. Nineveh, Nineveh gets it. We could go down a long list of people that we may think, I don't know. But God says they get it. God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, dost thou well to be angry for the gourd? And Jonah's last recorded words, I do well to be angry even unto death. He dug his heels in, dug them in deep. He was going to buck God no matter what God had to say about it. Jonah had allowed his anger with God and Nineveh's repentance and their forgiveness to spread into everything that he was touching in life. He was mad about the gourd. He was upset about the gourd. He didn't cause it to grow. It was there for a short period of time and then it was gone the next day. And he was angry about that. Which leads me to our final question and point. What catches the attention of your heart. Verse 10, then said the Lord, thou hast had pity on the gourd for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. God asks him this final question. And should not I spare Nineveh? That great city wherein are more than six score 
thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and also much cattle. Jonah, you're upset about the plant dying and you not having the comfort of the shade that it provided. But you're not bothered by the 120,000 people that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand. It was referring to their moral ignorance. Morally and ethically speaking, they were like children. And God is saying to them, these people who are so confused about what's wrong and what's right, 120,000 of them, when they found out we were going to destroy them, repented and turned from their evil ways. And Jonah, you are more bothered by your inconvenience of being in the sun by your comfort being stripped away from you than you are of those 120,000 souls. We don't get to hear Jonah's response. This is the end of the book. Because of that, I think this is the right place for us to insert ourselves into Jonah's life. And the question that God would ask us then, should God not spare Indy? I want you to stand with me. Let it never be said of us that our conveniences in this life take priority over reaching the lost. And that can go right over our heads and we can be like, I'll never let it happen until a service goes 10 minutes longer than we think it should and we're exiting instead of praying. Oh, I'm not caught up in modern conveniences. It's so easy in today's day and age for something to catch our attention. Something to get a hold of our heart that doesn't seem evil, doesn't seem wrong, but it starts to steal away from what God is desiring for our heart to be drawn to. And so all across Indianapolis, we have people that don't really understand right from wrong. I'm not talking about stealing or not stealing. I'm talking about what's right in God's eyes and what's wrong in God's eyes. Blending the genders, teaching things to our young kids in schools. We have teachers that I'm asking us to ask God, spare our teachers. God, they don't really understand right from wrong. They're in our public school systems. They're teaching our kids things that will destroy their lives if they follow it. But God, we're asking you to spare our teachers. There's doctors, there's lawyers, there's politicians, as much as there are homeless people and prostitutes, that they just don't understand their right hand from their left hand. They don't get it. In our prayers, we close out, and I'm asking you to make this your prayer as you go throughout the rest of this week. God, spare them. 
And so, Lord, we ask you tonight, help us to learn from what you clearly displayed in this last chapter of Jonah. God, help us to not become so caught up with things that are comfortable to us, things that make it easy for us that we would take our eyes off of what matters. God, we have a city all around us, Lord, where people don't know you. They've never met you. So many of them have never even heard of you. They don't understand about the joy and the peace of the Lord that can come along and minister to their lives when they surrender themselves to you. We're asking you, God, to spare our city. We're asking you to spare our neighbors. We're asking you to spare our teachers, God. Spare those that are politicians, whether they get it or not, God. We're asking that you spare them. We're asking that you spare those that are caught up in gross sin. We're asking that you spare those that don't even understand that they need sparing. God, we're asking for you in this last day to send a revival that would spare our city that your spirit would fall upon all flesh as you have promised us it would. God, spare our city. If that will be your prayer for this week, say amen. Amen.